hear the scripture, Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. He also, he is Jesus. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I mentioned a minute ago, we're moving into the fall ministry season at our church. That's always an important time of year in our life as a church. Everyone's coming back from the summer, school's beginning, and uh, we're getting ready to jump back into our rhythms and routines. It's also a season where we usually see a lot of new faces, which we're excited about. And so we're going to take three weeks beginning today to just revisit together our vision and mission as a church community. Uh, Just a reminder, or maybe some of you are hearing this for the first time, Christ Church exists to savor God's grace, to build God's community, and to join in God's mission. That's our mission statement. Grace, community, mission. If If you're new or newer, this is a good time then for you to learn a little bit more about us. If you've been around for a while, this is a refresher in what we're doing here together. What I want to ask in the next couple of weeks is how can we this fall live into that mission together? And as I've been thinking about that idea and reflecting on it a little bit, there's three words that I would like us to focus on in the next three weeks. Three things that I would like us to commit to or recommit to as a church this fall. The first word is welcome. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The second is service. And the third is generosity. Welcome, service, generosity. We're going to take three weeks and look at each of those ideas. And then on September 11th, when we sort of launch our fall ministry season, we're going to begin a new sermon series in First John. And so in the coming weeks, by the way, in your own devotional lives, I would just encourage you to, to read through um, John's first letter. It's a short five-chapter book, so you should be able to do that. So today I want us to think about a welcoming church. What does it mean to be a welcoming church? And we're going to use this parable of Jesus's in Luke 14 as a starting point. I love this parable. Um, Just a little word on the context real quickly. The context here 
is that Jesus has been invited to this party. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 14, you'll see one of the religious leaders of the day invited Jesus over to have a, a meal together with him and some of his buddies. But, you know, as, as we might suspect, he's also trying to get his eyes on Jesus and test Jesus and twist Jesus up with his words. So Jesus is at this dinner party. And he begins telling stories. And interestingly enough, this story, he tells, is about a dinner party. So we've got a dinner party within a dinner party. It's like Inception or something here, right? Okay. A dinner party within a dinner party. And and in Jesus' story, things don't go as anyone would have expected, which is common in Jesus' stories. And in the telling of the story, Jesus is, he's extending each one of us. He's extending to each one of us an invitation to the party that he's throwing to God's banquet, to God's own feast. And I think that the story is also instructive for our life and work together as a church. So let's walk through it together as we think about what it means to be a welcoming church. First of three points is the invitation of God. Let me show you the invitation of God. Even if you're unfamiliar with this passage, if you haven't read your Bibles in some time, it it shouldn't be too difficult to see that what Jesus is doing here is drawing an analogy, which is common. He often does that. In verse 16, look there, Jesus says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. The man, by way of analogy, the host of this banquet, refers to God the Father. And the banquet he's throwing is analogous for God's kingdom, for the new world that God in and through Jesus is going to build. And so I want to focus us on, just at the outset, what Jesus' story tells us about the character of God. What Jesus' story tells us about God's very heart. God is throwing uh, a lavish party and, and God wants us to be a part of it. Listen, God is throwing a party. And he invites each of us to be a part. That's what God's kingdom is. It's a banquet. It's a feast. It's a party of grace and joy and happiness and life. That is God's heart. But look at the end of the story. Notice what his servants tell the master after they've gathered people to come. Verse 22, still there is room. And again, the master says, go out and get more people. Compel people to come in. Verse 23, that my house may be filled. We see here, listen, God wants his kingdom to be standing room only. God wants his kingdom to be filled. Filled. He's, he's filling his house with guests. He's compelling people to come. That is what the real God is like. That is God's heart. In Matthew's version of this story, um, Jesus tells it slightly differently. It's a king throwing a wedding feast for his son. I think that's helpful because it gives us a little bit more information about why this master, why this host is so concerned that his house be filled. Matthew's gospel helps us. Think about it this way. None of us wants to have a wedding for our children that's going to embarrass them with lack of attendance when many invited don't come. I heard a number of stories over the last couple of years, as I'm sure some of you have as well. Heck, some of you have probably experienced this. Weddings during COVID, right, have not gone as they were planned, have not gone as hoped. I've seen wedding pictures where everyone is masked up. I've heard stories about very, very few people attending. No one 
envisions that, especially for their children when they think about their wedding, because we want to honor and celebrate the wonder of our children's marriages. And similarly, God wants a full house at this banquet because he's determined to honor his son. You see, the greatness and the glory of the name of Jesus is at stake here. God the Father wants his son Jesus to receive praise and honor. So he compels people to come. He wants to fill the room so that Jesus in all of his grandeur and grace might be magnified. There are more reasons, though, why God's heart is seen here in wanting the house to be full. He also invites many and wants a full room to show us how much he loves us. God wants us to see how great his affection is for his people. The banquet, the banquet was a metaphor that was used often in the Old Testament for God's desire for life with his people. Let me just read you one example. This is from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 25. It's going to be on the screen. You can follow along. Isaiah prophesies, the Lord speaks through him. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's just one example of the truth that God is so committed to loving us that he demonstrates it by giving us a kingdom of indescribable wealth and beauty by throwing a lavish party. There's a show that uh, Marianne and I have been watching. The kids have been watching it with us. Kevin and Danae actually introduced us to this show over the summer. It's called Somebody Feed, Somebody Feed Phil. Any of you watched that show? It's a Netflix documentary. And Phil is this guy named Phil Rosenthal, who's been a television producer for decades. And guys, this is the greatest job in the world. Here's what Phil does. Phil goes to all kinds of cities all over the world and tastes their food. And he experiences both, you know, the five-star restaurants in a given city as well as like the street food and the street fare. And he almost always has a host who is from the city and will walk around with him and tell him about the culture of the place and the history of the place as they eat food together. And there's so many things about this show that are just robustly biblical and that are just amazing. It's such a good show. I'd encourage you to watch it. But one of the things I love most about the show is that most of the episodes end or climax with Phil sitting with a group of friends or sitting with a family in just an incredibly epic scenic place. As an example, he goes to Venice in one story, and um, the episode ends with him sitting right on the harbor of the Aegean Sea at this nice restaurant at a table, having a wonderful glass of wine and just this incredible food with new friends. And, And as you watch it, you just think to yourself, that must be the life. It draws out of us, at least it's drawn out of Marianne and I, just the desire for that kind of joy 
And I wonder if we think about the kingdom of God in those terms. How do you think of God's kingdom? What do you guys think heaven is going to be like? Is it going to be like, you know, choir rehearsal? Some of you are like, that sounds great. Me, eh, eh, not so much. Is it going to be like, you know, a, a eternal church service? That actually doesn't sound great to me either, I've got to admit. That's, it's going to be great. There's going to be worship, but it's going to be a feast. It's going to be a party. That's what God wants. He wants to give us life to the fullest, and he invites us in. You can also see um, the glory of God's grace in the gospel here in this story. I don't know if you caught it. Um, it's talked a little bit about, about there in uh, verses 12 through 14, but, but these parties that Jesus was at, um, culturally speaking, they were all about establishing new relationships that would be win-win relationships, right? Let me explain. Uh, the ancient world was a patronage society, a patronage society. And so people would have these kind of parties, and they would invite people in the same social circle as them, or people who were like in the social circle directly above them. And they build relationships with people that they invite into their home and seek to find new patrons for their projects, for their endeavors, for their art, etc. So the person throwing the party knew that all of the expenses for this party were going to get paid back to him down the line, and then some through the patrons and business relationships that he established. The cost paid by the host of the party was going to come back to him. In some sense, it was in his own self-interest to throw a party like this. But what does Jesus tell us God does? He invites those who are not a part of his social circle, who have nothing to do with his social network. He invites people who can never pay him back, who have nothing to offer, who in fact would have been an embarrassment for him to have enter his home. Bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Go out to the streets and lanes of the city. Go out to the highways and hedges. Listen, in the gospel, God takes on the cost, all of the cost to bring us into his feast. The cost is great, too. It's the death of his only beloved son who gave himself up for us as a sacrifice of atonement that we may be made acceptable to come into God's home. That's how much God loves you. God has paid the way. God has borne the cost. God has opened up his doors to us and for us, not because we deserved it or earned it or could give him anything in return at all, but simply out of his deep love. And his invitation is open to all who will come. It's open to people who see their own need and see his provision. Let's look at that second. The invitation of God, second, the people, the people of God. The majority of the story Jesus tells is about the two types of guests who were invited, right? There's those who refuse to accept the invitation on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's those who do accept it. And of course, Jesus is asking a question of us through the parable. When you read the Bible, you're not just reading it for like your own intellectual stimulation. You're encountering God through it. God is speaking to you through this story. And the question that the Holy Spirit is asking you is, which group are you a part of? Which group are you a part of? Are you one who is refusing his invitation or are you accepting it? 
The way invitations worked in that day was that there would be really two invitations, right? And we can understand this. The first was like a save the date invitation. It was like an RSVP. And this invitation in our story has already gone out and a lot of people have said, yes, right, I'll be there. And the second invitation, which is what the master is telling the servant to give here at the outset of the story, is saying in essence, hey, everything's ready, come on over. So to not show up, right, at this point, would have been offensive, it would have been discourteous, it would have been insulting. And I want you just quickly to look at the difference between those who refuse to come and those who attend. What do you see? We don't have time to get into the details here, but I think it can be summarized in a few words. Those who refused do so because of indifference and presumption. The indifference is seen in the lame excuses that they make. You can see them there in verses 18 through 20. These excuses all have one thing in common. That is, they're ridiculous excuses. They make no sense. They're exceedingly lame. It's not that these invited guests could not come, Jesus is saying. It's that they would not come. They don't care enough to attend. They're disinterested. But there's also presumption. Of course, the original audience Jesus is speaking to here would have understood that these people who refused are a metaphor for the nation of Israel. And Israel's great fault was that they presumed that because of their birthright, that because of their lineage, they were in God's favor, irrespective of their trust in him and irrespective of their humility before him. That's why they end up rejecting Jesus. Jesus comes calling them to repentance and faith, but they don't think they need to do that because they think they're already in. In John's gospel, for example, the Jewish leaders tell Jesus they're getting worked up about him already, and they say, Jesus, we don't need to listen to you. We have Abraham as our father. Look at our family tree. Look at our lineage. Look at our flesh and blood. Look at who our great, 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 great granddad was. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if that were really true, you would be doing what Abraham did, which is to believe in the one whom God has sent. But instead, you're acting like your real dad, the evil one who lies and who refuses to believe in me. Their presumption upon God takes them straight into the judgment of God. So those who refuse are indifferent, they're presumptuous, and then there's those who do end up at the party. What do you see in them? Well, they're the needy. They're all the poor and powerless. They're all the lost and lonely. They're the weak. They're the broken. They're the blind. They're the lame. You remember the show 10 years ago or so, this is a bit of a cultural phenomenon, Downton Abbey, who watched Downton Abbey? All you men, raise your hand, I know some of you men are lying. Thank you for being honest. Downton Abbey, British drama, kind of devolved in my opinion, but the first couple seasons were great. And uh, Downton Abbey, the beginning of season two, by the way, it's about this, this British patrician family who have this just beautiful estate and the, the head of the family runs the home, and he's got this, you know, litany of servants who uh, are under, downstairs, and they run the house too, and it's telling their stories and all their drama and the daughters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's set in the early 20th century, in the beginning of season two, they've got just this magisterial and beautiful mansion, and season two is set at the beginning of World War I. And the mansion in season two turns into a hospital, 
a hospital for the walking wounded and for the lame and for those who have been hurt in the war. And so the incredible tapestries and the incredible carpets and the, the beautiful um, decorations in the home are all shifted and transformed to take care of those who have been hurt in the war. It's, it's really quite a startling picture to see. And it's the exact picture Jesus is painting here about what God's kingdom is like. The kingdom is for those who know their own need and are willing to run to Jesus in faith and in hope. Significantly, these are the exact people that had been banned from Israel's religious ceremonies and Israel's temple worship. These are the exact people that the religious establishment worked hard to reassure reassure themselves that they were not like. But Jesus alters our perceptions. Jesus says that until you identify with the weak and the lame and the blind, you won't enter his banquet. Jesus says that until you admit, you are. You are one of the needy. You can't get in. How do you see yourself? How do we see ourselves as a church? Do we see ourselves as those whom Jesus has compelled to come to his party? Or, or do we see ourselves as those who have some claim on God to deserve a seat at the table? That makes all the difference in the culture of a church. The truth is, the truth is, we're a church full of the poor, the crippled, and the blind. We are the spiritually impoverished with nothing to offer God at all for salvation. We are the spiritually crippled, made completely helpless by our own sin. We are the spiritually blind, unable to see the truth about Jesus Christ and his world on our own. We are the spiritually lame, unable to get up and walk in need of a miracle of gracious healing from the Lord. But what does God do? He comes to us. He invites us. He doesn't bring in the acceptable because there are no acceptable ones. He brings in those who know how desperately needy they really are. And he fills up his banquet hall with the weak and the broken, with sinners, not saints. Can you imagine yourself in this way? Do you imagine our church in this way? A bunch of spiritual misfits. We are, I'm your pastor, who know their need and who have come to the Father's house. Do you think of God in this way? A God who, in his marvelous grace, takes people like me and takes people like you, broken and distraught, and messy and sinful, and addicted and compulsive and helpless and poor, but who recognize our need and want to be changed. That's who God is. The one who sends out his servant son to compel us to come and to bring us into a place we never deserved or expected to be. The sheer audacity of the gospel of grace is on display in this story. Is it on display in our lives? Is it on display in our church? 
That's what God is calling us to, friends. Let's think about that practically. Third, we've seen the invitation of God, the people of God, and now the welcome. The welcome of God. Given God's invitation and given the people who accept it, so what? What does that mean? What lessons can we take as a church from this story? How does it inform how we live together? How does it help us imagine what God is calling us to? Real quickly, I want to wrap up with a couple of practical thoughts for us. And the first and foremost thing I think we should all hear, including me, is this. This story calls us to humility. It calls us to humility. Jesus asks us through this story to see ourselves rightly. And not to remain there in our sin, but in faith to go to Jesus. This story calls us, as all of the scripture calls us, to humble faith and repentance. What does it mean to be able to a part of a church that is welcoming? It means to acknowledge we're all a mess, that God loves us, and that anyone can get in on this. We're all a mess. God loves us, and anyone can get in on this. When that infuses the culture of a place, what you begin to see is the welcome of God being made known. Another piece of application, the servants stay, still there is room. Still there is room. God is calling us through this story to make room, literally, (laughs) to make room for new people. We've been around now for eight and a half years, guys. We're not a church who get boilerplate relationships only. If you've been around for a while, you know that. We're constantly seeing new people come into our community and come check us out. And here's what we want for you. We want you to have friendships old and new. Because as the people of God, we do not do this thing for ourselves. We get benefits from it, and we need community, and we're going to grow as we develop friendships, but we want to be a church that exists for those who are not yet here. We want to be a church that exists for those who are not yet here. In what way, if you call this church your home, are you contributing to that mission? What an opportunity. Our mission is to welcome and make room for any whom God will bring. I mean, guys, very practically, this room's almost full. I mean, it is. There's a few seats, shockingly, at the very, very, very front. I'm amazed by that. Like, if you've been around for a while, you can literally make room for people as we move into the fall. If you've been around for a while, and if you feel known here, what I want you to do is find people that you don't know and go to them first, instead of seeking those with whom you were most comfortable first. If you've been around for a while, think about inviting someone into your life via a lunch or hanging out for coffee, getting to know someone, welcoming them, welcoming them. Another quick thing, look at what the master says, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Compel people to come. That's the job of the servants of God. Invite those in your life to be a part. Understanding that we're inviting them to a feast, a a banquet. Do we see life as a church as preparation, in a sense, for life in the kingdom? Let me close out with this. Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, there's some copies out there on the welcome table. Take one if you haven't read that book. He says that a welcoming church, a church that has both gospel doctrine and gospel culture, 
uh, always has this equation, gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel means a welcoming church gives people multiple exposures to the message of God's free grace in Jesus Christ. Plus safety. A welcoming church provides the safety of non-accusing sympathy and welcome so people can admit their problems honestly. And time means time for people to rethink their lives at a deep level through the lens of the gospel because people are complex and changing is not easy. What would it look like for Christ Church to more and more embody that equation in our community? Gospel plus safety plus time. One of the biggest reasons people reject Christianity today is not because they have stifling intellectual arguments against it. They say, rather, look at the churches. Look at the churches. It's similar to, you know, if you want to study Marxism, you can read, you know, 1,500 pages of Das Kapital, or you can look at the Soviet Union and North Korea and China and see how well Marxism works. It's similar with us. If you want to know if Christianity works and is believable and beautiful, you can read the scriptures. That's a good thing. You can become a PhD in theology, but the best way to know is to look at the church. What would it mean for us to be a church that people look at and say, that, mean, that place shows me the welcome of God. That place is embodying the reality that we're all a mess God loves us, and anyone can get in on this. My prayer for us this fall and into the future is that when people look at our church by God's grace through the ministry of his spirit, they will not turn away, but they will turn towards the God of grace because Jesus has said they will know him by your love. May we love one another and welcome one another and those that are not yet here with the hospitality of God in all of his rich grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.